0: Fifty-two, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, page 1052 in the Pew Bible. And let me read a portion of this passage, then we'll talk about it. John chapter 4, verses 1 to... We'll read through verse 15... says, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more into Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... I'm sure you've had the experience before of uh, looking down at your jacket or sweater and and you look down and you notice a little frayed uh, thread sticking up, just a little tiny thread. And um, what you're supposed to do, of course, when you find a thread like that, the proper procedure is to pull it up just a little bit and then snip it so that the thread will kind of recede back into the fabric. That's what you're supposed to do. Unless, of course, you're a kid or unless you are male, in, in which case the, the proper response to the thread is to grip it tightly and to yank decisively as hard as you can. Uh, and sometimes that works and it snaps off. Other times, though, it, you, you know, what ends up happening is, is you have this long thread that comes out and, you know, it's like the magician who pulls the, you know, the the, fa- uh, the flags out of his sleeve. And so you're, you're pulling and you see the thread run up your your sleeve like that. That's kind of what happened to me as I was studying John 4. Um, my original intention was to take this, what I think is really one of the more fascinating conversations in the Bible. It's an extended conversation between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan woman. And, and I was intending to preach it as two sermons. I was going to take uh, verses 1 to 15 as sermon number one. And then, as, as we'll see eventually, there's a kind of natural break, or a natural, not break, but sort of transition Between that and verses 16 to 26, which is the rest of the conversation, that was going to be sermon number two. Then I found this um, thread sticking up, and I yanked on it, and a whole other sermon came out. So, uh, that's what you're getting this morning. So, my my two-sermon plan has unraveled, but hopefully, in a good way, hopefully, and unlike it, a sweater won't ruin the sweater, but it'll actually um, be helpful. So I want to show you, let me show you the little thread that I saw sticking up that I just got bothered by and I had to fiddle with. It's in verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. You see the thread? He had to go through Samaria. The thread sticking up is that little phrase that's translated in English here, had to. He had to go to Samaria in greek the thread is even smaller in greek it's one little word it's not a noun it's not a verb it's just a three-letter word in greek it's the word day which if you translate it into english would be like d e i uh, delta epsilon iota day and and it means the word day means something like it is necessary it is required it must be It, it has a sense of of mustness to it something must happen or is necessary that something should happen. Or in order for something else to happen, this must happen first. And uh, so, so you, you have the translationary he had to. So, in Greek, it's something like, now, day, he go through Samaria. It was necessary that he went through Samaria. And, you know, I was kind of looking at it, and I thought, well, that, that's sort of interesting. Why did he have to go through Samaria? I mean, why, why was that a necessity? Why was it required that he go through Samaria? So, You know, when you have a question about the Bible, if you're ever reading the Bible and something kind of pops up and you go, what does that mean? Why is it like that? Well, you know, the first step is always to look at the immediate verses. See what comes before, see what comes after, look at the context. That's how you understand what the Bible means is what it means in context not just kind of what it means to me or how I feel about it, but what does it mean? What did it try to say? So, you know, you look at the verses before it, verses 1 and 2. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. And when the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So uh, Jesus is in Judea. He's baptizing. He's getting popular. The Pharisees find out. For some reason, that's not something he wants, maybe because he wasn't ready for his ministry to be as big there yet. It's not quite clear. But he goes to Galilee. Um, Take out your sermon notes for a minute. This is probably more helpful just to see in some ways. Here's a little map of the land of Israel in the time of Jesus in the first century A.D. under Roman occupation. And during the time of Roman occupation, these were the provinces So you see, in the south, there's Judea. That's where he was baptizing. The Pharisees found out, and he had to go to Galilee. Do you see at the top of the map, there's Galilee up to the north. And what's in between? Samaria. So he had to travel through Samaria. Uh, And and in fact, that's what he does. And then that sets up verses 5 to 6, where it says, "...he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph." Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So so that kind of transitions us to this story. And again, you look at the map, and there's a little dot there where Jacob's well is. You can go to Jacob's well today. Uh, It is still there. It's inside a a Greek Orthodox church. Uh, It's a rather deep well. It surprisingly still produces water and good water, and uh, and, uh, it's about 100, 120-foot well, and it's there. Still working. So Jesus was there. That, that's where he was. So, so you look at this and you say, okay, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And, you know, my first response, or maybe our first response seeing a map like this is, well, yeah. I see why he had to go through Samaria. Because if you're going to go from south to north, you start in Judea and you end up in Galilee. I mean, big mystery, Jeremy. Ooh, you know, thread. It's not really a thread. Except that there was another way to get to Galilee. There's another route. You could also go from Jerusalem, cross the Jordan River. Do you see that uh, territory called Perea? You could go up Perea on the east side of the Jordan River, and then once you pass Samaria, cross the Jordan again at another ford and get into Galilee. That's important because that is, in fact, what a lot of Jews did. It was a common Jewish route, north and south. Why? Because they didn't want to go through Samaria. (laughs) They didn't like the Samaritans. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? You know, it's like, it's like basic rules in life. You know, you don't strike up a conversation with a stranger on the red line. That's, that's weird. You don't do that. And if you're a Jew, you don't talk to a Samaritan. It, it, you know, the Jews... Uh, there was an animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. There's an, an, an ethnic. There was a, there were racism issues, if you want to put it in modern kind of terms. The, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as kind of mongrels, half Jew, half Gentile. So there was a kind of a, a racial superiority issue. There was a religious issue. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as having goofed up theology. So, so you know, you put racial, ethnic issues and religious issues together, and you have a powerful kind of reaction between Jew and Samaritan in general. So the woman is surprised. So all that to say, <clears throat> when we ask the question, why did he have to go through Samaria? It's not because that was how you get there. there were, you, you know, you could take 93 straight through Samaria, but a lot of Jews took the longer route. They took 95 around to get from the, the South Shore to the North Shore. And you know what? It was worth the, the, the extra distance just to stay out of, you know, Samaria. So that was... So, so, you know, I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's not why he had to go through Samaria because there was another road. road. Uh, well, well, maybe he was just in a rush. I mean, maybe that's it. Samaria was the shorter distance, so he had to get there quickly. Maybe he had another wedding to get to up in Cana or something. I mean, who knows? He, he had something. He was on a rush. Uh, so he took the short route instead of the longer, a little bit longer route. One of the reasons that doesn't sit totally well is because later on in John chapter 4, we find out he, he makes an unex, uh, unplanned extended stay in Samaria. You know, if you look down at, um, where is it, down in verse 39. Kind of jump ahead a little bit in the story. But eventually Jesus has a kind of impromptu ministry in this town. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. So probably not in that big of a rush. If he could say, oh, yeah, sure, two days, I'll stay at minister here. So, okay, so it's not a geographical necessity. It's not a time crunch. He wasn't on a clock. So why did he have to go through Samaria? Why was it necessary? What, why, what was it that was compelling him and driving him to go through Samaria? Well, you, you know, you, you look at the immediate context of John to try to find an answer. And sometimes if you can't find an answer there, what you need to do is, when you're trying to interpret the Bible, is you just expand out the context a little bit. And, and you say, okay, the immediate context of John 4 isn't completely decisive. What about the context of the whole gospel of John? And one of the things you can do is to say, does that little word day appear anywhere else and does it have any other kind of significance in John? Does, is that helpful? And, and when you ask that question, I think that's when the thread comes streaming out. Zzz, and you say, ah. If you just you know, take a concordance and look up that word day in John, what you find is it occurs 10 times in John. And in every single instance it carries the theological idea with it of a divinely ordered necessity. So that day doesn't have to mean that, but when every time John uses it, he chooses to kind of load it up with a theological freight so that every time he's talking about day, he means something is necessary because that's God's will. Something is necessary because God planned it that way. Something is necessary because this is the way God wants it to be. It was necessary because of a divine force behind it. So, for instance, just a couple of quick for instances. Look at our chapter, chapter 4. It occurs two more times. Uh, Look at chapter 4, verse 20. The woman says to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So one of the debates between Jews and Samaritans is where did God want them to worship. But here's the point. Look at verse 20. You Jews claim we, the place we must, must worship is Jerusalem. See the word must? Greek, that's day. It is necessary that we worship in Jerusalem. In other words, the debate was over what is God's will for where people are supposed to worship. It was about the divine will and the divine purpose. Or look at verse 24. This wonderful verse. Is so interesting. God is spirit and his worshipers must day worship in spirit and in truth. So he's talking about this is God's will for how we have to worship with the coming of Christ. And we'll unpack that when we get there. But just notice, again, the divine necessity. But not only does it kind of carry a general sense of God's will, God's purpose, but Jesus uses that word day specifically to talk about the necessity of his mission. You know, why did Jesus come into the world? Well, it was necessary for him to come into the world to accomplish God's purpose and plan. Which includes dying on the cross for our sins. Look at another day. It's on uh, chapter three, verse fourteen. Mark Jennings preached on this two weeks ago, uh, so masterfully. Uh, John chapter three, verse fourteen. This famous uh, verse in John three, right before John three sixteen. It says John three fourteen, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Day, the Son of Man be lifted up. It is necessary that he must be lifted up. So Jesus is saying, my mission is to be lifted up. My mission is to to die on the cross for sins. That's why I'm here. It must happen. This is why I came into the world. It's like when Jesus first appears in the Gospel of John, the very first time we through the pages see him, so to speak, John the Baptist points to him. And you remember John the Baptist's declaration? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So from the get-go, we know that the mission of Jesus at its core is to come and be the sacrifice for sins upon the cross. Jesus came to die in order to bear the punishment for sins that we deserve that separates us from God. So Jesus says, it is necessary to be lifted up. I must be Because this is why I've come. This is my mission. Same thing. Let me show you another one. John chapter 12, verse 34. And all these are on your sermon notes, by the way, just so you can take it home and kind of have that. Do with it what you will. John chapter 12, verse 34. Actually, let's go back to verse 32. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all men to Myself. He said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on a cross. And through that, He was going to draw men to Himself. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever, so how can you say the Son of Man must day be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? What, what do you mean this, the, the Messiah has to be crucified? Is the Messiah supposed to live forever, not die, not get Killed on a cross. It doesn't make any sense to us. So they were wrestling with that. He must be lifted up. So, so the day, again, it has to do with God's plan. God had a plan for Jesus to die and be crucified for our sins and rise again. You know, look at one more, look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 9. This is after his death, after his burial right on the first Easter Sunday when the disciples find the empty tomb, what does it say in John 20, verse 9? They still did not understand from the Scriptures that Jesus had to, day, rise from the dead. So, so that word, that, that word day, is just pregnant with theological meaning. You know, it, it's, it's just bursting with theological meaning. You know, Jesus had to, die on the cross and rise again because that was the divine plan promised in the Old Testament, foreshadowed, predicted, prophesied, and now finally the divine plan was coming to pass and Jesus says, I have to die. I have to rise again because this is what the Father and the Son have covenanted it together to do. It was necessary. Now, here's the thing. Not only is Jesus' mission dying on the cross for sinners... But here's the other part of his mission. It's also, and this is key, it is also going and getting the sinners for whom he died. So we often emphasize the die on the cross part, and rightly so, but don't you know that part of his mission was to also go and get those for whom he died? Look at John chapter 10. Let me show you another day. Yeah, like seven days here. It's like a whole week. John chapter 10, verse 14. So here's what I want you to notice here, that the mission of Jesus is not only to die, but it is also to seek and find those for whom he died. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I will lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must, day, it is necessary that I bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And we'll get to chapter 10 eventually, but you know, what he's talking about is the Gentile mission, that not only is he gathering in sheep from the Jews, but the gospel's gonna go to the Gentiles too, and there's other sheep that are gonna be brought into the flock. But here's the point, is that again, Jesus' mission was to gather in those for whom the good shepherd would die. And I think that's important because it's, it's a picture of Jesus' saving work that is very intentional, very um, aggressive, very pointed, very active. I think one of the, the, the problems that we evangelicals run into sometimes when we try to explain the cross We try to explain the gospel to people is that we, whether we intend to or not, we end up kind of portraying Jesus' work for us in a kind of passive way. As a sort of like, you know, Jesus takes kind of a passive, hands off role in salvation. You know, it's sort of like Jesus died for the sins of the world, He died for everybody, He bought this gift, He paid the price for everybody. And now he kind of steps back, and it's really, it's up to you to decide what to do with the gift. He's bought the gift. The gift is there. It's up for you to decide how to handle the gift. And, and there's truth to that. Salvation is a gift, and we do have to make a decision. But, but we kind of portray it like Jesus is sort of like, look, I died. That's my part. And now your part is to figure out what to do with it. Like, you know, I was trying to think of some analogies. I don't know if these work or not. But it, it's like salvation is a website that Jesus designed and he put it up on the web, and then he sits at home in his computer waiting for hits. Like, is anyone, is anyone going to click? Oh, I got another one. woo oh, Someone else went to my website. Yeah! Hey, people are getting saved. This is awesome. You know, it's moving up on the Google list. Woo! Or, or like, Jesus sent out invitations, and now he just kind of sits up in heaven every day waiting for the mailman to come, and you know, obviously I'm just being crazy here, but you know, he, the mailman comes and it's like, oh, did I get any RSVPs? Did anyone accept my invitation to eternal life? Oh, five more have accepted my invitation to eternal life. You know, we talk about, we, we talk about it in that sense, as if Jesus' death was kind of a generic thing that he put out there and it's really, at that point, kind of up to us to decide what to do with it. But that's not the picture we have in John. Not here and not in other places we're going to find. Not in John 4. We find a Savior, first of all, who died for his sheep. When the Bible talks about Jesus dying for the world, it doesn't mean that he died for every single human being in the world. Think about it. If that's true, you've got problems. Because either everybody is going to be saved... Because he paid the, sin, paid the price for everyone's sins, well, then they're forgiven. Or he paid the price for everybody's sins, but then some of those people are going to end up in hell anyway. So how did he pay the price and atone for sins, but then they're not, I mean, you know, now you have an ineffective savior. You've got all kinds of problems there. But what we find is that he died for his sheep. So when the Bible talks about Jesus dying for the world or the sins of all people, I think what it means is both Jew and Gentile. That it's not just the Old Testament people of Israel, but now with the coming of Jesus, the Jew and the Gentile are both being brought in. It's, it's the world. It's not just the limited people of God. It's, it's sinful humanity, people from all different backgrounds, even Samaritans. That's the world that he's reaching out to. But he dies for his sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep, and the sheep know me, and they hear my voice, and what does he do? He goes and gets them. And so the picture here is not kind of Jesus sort of flying, renting an airplane and flying the gospel over the world, and hopefully some people decide to choose him. It, it is very much Jesus dying for specific people whom the Father has given him and then going and finding those lost sheep and bringing them in. It is a very active Messiah, dying for the elect and finding and gathering the elect. This is uh, sometimes called the doctrine of particular uh, atonement. He atoned for a particular group of people, from Jew and Gentile, from all the world, all different types. So now go back to John 4. I think that's what's going on. You know, why did he have to go through Samaria? It's because he was on this mission to find the lost for whom he came. Look, you know, look at verses 27 and following. It's kind of jumping ahead, about three or four sermons out, but I'll just kind of look at the text anyway. It says, "Then, just then his disciples returned, and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? I guess they're kind of used to Jesus being a little unorthodox. Then leaving her jar of water, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. So here's disciples and Jesus at the well, this crowd walking toward them. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? Another one of these right over their heads kind of moments. It just happens so many times in John. And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. So so the thing that feeds me, the thing that drives me and keeps me alive is doing the Father's will, that it is necessary. I'm here for a mission. And what is it? You say four months more than the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for the harvest. You don't get to see him pointing to that crowd coming up from the village. Don't you see right here? This was my mission, not only to die and to rise again, but to go and find the sheep for whom I died. I'm here for them. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because he was coming for her. The dirty, serial relationship, Samaritan woman. And he was coming for them, the people who would believe coming out of the town. The work of our Savior, the mission of our Savior is not just kind of a generic, gee, I hope you accept me kind of thing. Like, poor Jesus, he's longing for a relationship with you. You know, would you please give him some time because he died, he did all this stuff and no one's really listening to him. Poor Jesus, come on, give him a relationship. No, 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 no. This is, I chose my sheep, I died for my sheep, I will get my sheep. And the sheep are clueless. The sheep are, oh, what's going. you know, the woman, she doesn't know what's going on. And Jesus comes, he came for her and for them and he came for us. What an encouraging text. I I just find this so exciting. This is so, so strengthening to our faith. You know, when you really think about it, when you really kind of let your head get around that, you know, what an awesome God we have and what he's done for us. Can I just quickly suggest three ways this should encourage us? At least three ways. There's probably more, but just quickly tick off three. Number one, I think it's encouraging for Christians when we look back on our salvation and we begin to apprehend that God not only died for us, but found us. Just that's so encouraging to look back and realize that that Jesus not only died for me specifically, but He also finds and calls those for whom He died. He came and found me, and, and it's awesome. And, and we don't realize it at the time. We're kind of like the Samaritan woman. You know, we got the jar of water. We're doing our business. We sit down next to Jesus. We don't even realize what's happening, but God is at work. Uh, this was driven home to me afresh two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I wasn't here. I was back in my uh, home church in Las Vegas, Nevada, where I, I had first become a Christian and and first started to grow in my faith, and um, they are having their 50th anniversary, so I went back and had the joy of preaching for my home church's 50th anniversary. It's it pretty cool. But, but you know, you go back to a place like that, you kind of go back to the old place where you grew up, and you look around, and, and you realize you didn't you weren't fully aware of everything that was happening at the time, and you kind of look back in your life and you you realize there's things going on that you you didn't realize were going on. And, you know, you start asking questions like, how did I get there? Why why was I born in Las Vegas, Nevada? Why were my parents there? How did we get to that church? Why did I go to that church? Who are these people? You know, know, I, I wasn't just kind of this isolated speck doing my own thing. I was part of this whole thing, you know? And all the people, I'm looking out over the the congregation, and I see people who were there when I was a teenager, and now they're wrinkled, now they're gray. But they're there, and they're faithful. They were faithful all those years. And it affected me, and I didn't even know it. I wasn't aware of how. You know, I came in the door, and there at the door is this guy named Jack Taylor, is uh, this guy in our church, good guy, lifelong bachelor, uh, head of our elder board, of, of their elder board, just a godly man. When I was a teenager, he was handing out bulletins. I walk in, he now has gray hair, handing out bulletins. Just kind of like that, that faithful, serving Christ. And, and you go like, wow, I didn't even realize that was there. There's so many things here. And that guy taught my youth group, and that, that person was in Sunday school, and that one I served with in Vacation Bible School. And suddenly you realize, God was setting me up. (laughs) He came and found me. He, He orchestrated the events in my life. Did I have to believe in Jesus to be saved? Yes. You do have a choice. You must make a decision. You must repent and believe. This is not fate. You must believe in Christ if you're going to be saved. But once you're a Christian, you look back and you realize That that moment of me believing was birthed from a womb of divine sovereign orchestration. That there was a great muscular contraction of God's purposes that made me born again. So that my first baby cry was, Jesus have mercy on me. Yeah, I cried that. I believed. But it was because of this divine plan. It's because he sought me and gave me a new birth. And you're humbled that God would orchestrate all these things in your life. It's like this old board game we used to play. I I, I don't know if this analogy could be lame because kids today don't play board games. They play computer games. But you want to play the board game Mousetrap? Please tell me. I know all the adults are waving. There's a kid back there waving. Thank you. Thank you. I don't feel so old. Power to the gamers. Yeah. Um, yeah, mousetrap is this board game, Milton Bradley or Hasbro or something, I don't know. And you would, throughout the game, you would move your mouse around the board, and if you drew certain cards or whatever, you'd begin constructing this elaborate mousetrap. You know, it's, it's kind of this thing where you, you hit one thing, and something happens, and that triggers something else. And, and so the game, you actually undo this mousetrap. So the mouse is at the the cheese part, and you watch, and that's the whole thing as a kid, is watching the mousetrap go, and finally the little net comes down and catches the mouse. And, and you look back and you're like, there's this whole mousetrap that God was building, and I'm the mouse. And he caught me. Like, except in this mousetrap, when the thing falls, you actually go free and realize before you were trapped. You know, In this mousetrap, instead of the bar coming down and killing the mouse, you actually come to life when the trap is sprung. It's an inverted, weird mousetrap. It's just the opposite. (laughs) You're free. You're alive. You used to be captured and dead. Now you're in Christ. It's just so wonderful to think that God came for me. It wasn't just sort of a generic, hey, anyone who wants to get saved, you know, believe in Jesus. But it was, I, I believed, yes, but it's because God had me, planned it, predestined, died for me found me, drug me in, trap me. It's wonderful how much God loves us. What, what encouragement we have from the love of God. I think it's also an encouragement, number two, quickly, three encouragements. One is looking back on our salvation and getting a sense of the scope of God's love for us. I think it's also an encouragement in the present when we go through trials as Christians. You know, you become a Christian and life gets, you know, Perfect, right? It's great. You become a Christian and, woo, your problems just go away, and you become wealthy and prosperous and, you know, like they always tell you on TV, just name it and claim it. It doesn't happen that way. Life goes on. There are struggles. We have emotional struggles. We have health challenges. Our, we have financial setbacks. You know, that's life, and, and the Christian life is facing the same things in many ways as someone who doesn't know the Lord, but... And we can be tempted to think, well, where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? You know, But God's sovereign plan didn't end the moment you were saved. It's still working. He's still orchestrating things in your life. He, he still has other people that he wants to see come to know him. You know, like Jesus told the disciples, lift up your eyes. The field's white for the harvest. And so many times we can get focused on our specific situation, and we, and we lose sight of the fact that God still has other sheep to bring in. You know, you know why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because all the elect are not gathered in. There will come a day when the last elect person is saved, and then the end shall come. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all peoples as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so God still has a purpose and a plan. And you know what? He uses our lives. Sometimes he, he brings us down weird paths and back alleys and go through Samaria and stop by a well because there's someone there that he wants us to share the Lord with. Sometimes we don't even realize how he's using us. I mean, probably most of the time that's how it is. You know, we're, we're caught up in the drama of our lives and we forget that there's an audience watching the drama and how we act it out and what we do. It's, I don't know if any of you have ever done theater. Um, I did a little bit in high school. I don't know if that counts as actual theater, but I had fun anyway. Um, But, you know, if you do theater, there's something called the fourth wall. You know, the fourth wall in theater is, you know, the stage has three walls, and the fourth wall is between you and the audience. And and sometimes we get so wrapped up in the drama, we forget there are people who are watching us. They're watching our witness. They're watching our responses. And, like you know, like Jack Taylor handing out bulletins. He doesn't even know I'm seeing him every Sunday. Just hand out bulletins faithfully. God is watching, you know, people are watching, and God is using you, and you may not even know it until eternity to see how the great mousetrap was built. So be faithful. What you're going through is not meaningless. You say, well, why? Well, then what's the purpose? I don't know. I'm not building the mousetrap. I just know that it's there, and God uses everything, and it's, you know, who can know the mind of the Lord, but I just know that he is sovereign, and he's orchestrating all things together, even bad things, even the death of Christ, the worst thing ever for our good. And then a third encouragement. One encouragement is look back on your salvation and rejoice that God was at work. Another one is don't be discouraged in the present. Lift up your eyes. Realize God still is calling people and is using you as some way in that plan. And then number three, here's the third encouragement. I think this is an encouragement if you wouldn't yet consider yourself a Christian. If you're sort of like, yeah, I don't know, I'm interested. I'm checking it out. I'm here. But, ah. Uh, I don't know if Jesus is the Son of God. I, I, I don't know, you know, if, if all this is true. How do I know? And then you hear a thing like this, and you might be tempted to be discouraged, like, well, maybe I'm not one of the chosen ones, so what's the point of even trying? But you could just as easily look at it the other way, and you could ask this question, why are you here? Like, Why are you in this room right now? How did you get here? Oh, my mom made me come. I have to go. Okay, okay. So why is your mom your mom? Why is your mom here? Why does your mom believe? What, what, what if it's not random? <laughs> you know, what if you just didn't get a stinky religious mom? Like, what if there's a reason you got the mom you got? <laughs> what if? I'm here because my, my spouse dragged me here. okay. Why did you marry your spouse? Well, we were high school sweethearts. Okay, why did you meet each other? How did that work out? You know, I'm here because, I, you know, I went through a really tough time in my life and I don't even know what I'm looking for and there's, uh, you know, a little too much Jesus in this church, but, uh, but I'm here because it's kind of nice. Like, okay, but why, why did that happen? You know, what if, what if, hypothetically, God is working out a plan in your life And and we're like that woman at the well in Samaria who doesn't have no clue what's happening. And Jesus is right next to you, and the trap is, you can hear it clicking in the background. And it's just a matter of time before he reveals himself to you. I mean, what if? And so the question to ask isn't, am I one of the chosen, and what is God's plan? Because that's a pointless question. You're not going to know the answer to that. What's God's plan? I don't know. He's he's God. His mind is so complex. God thought up DNA. Like, how do I think, why do I think I would understand his mind and his plans? That's ridiculous. The question you should be asking is, if Jesus could save the dirty Samaritan woman, could he save me? And that is an answerable question. Yes. Just turn to him and look to him. He came to seek and save the lost, just like us. Let's pray.